Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of November the 5th, 2018. On this week's show, The Washington Post's Rick Mace will join us to explain what's going on at the University of Maryland, where head coach DJ Durkin was just fired after a contentious investigation that stemmed from the death of Maryland player Jordan McNair. Slate's Nick Green will also be here to talk about the Buffalo Bills' Nathan Peterman, who's setting a new standard for bad quarterback play in the NFL. And finally, Bleacher Report's Mirren Fader will discuss WNBA players' decision to opt out of their collective bargaining agreement and seek a better deal. Joining me in our Washington, D.C. studio is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. No funny scores in the NFL, so there's nothing to talk about. Hi, Stefan. Hey. Should we just go right into the show? Let's do the show. All right, let's do the show. Last week, the University of Maryland didn't and then finally did fire DJ Durkin, the football coach in charge of a program in which a 19-year-old student, Jordan McNair, died from heat stroke following a practice last spring. The firing could and probably should have happened months earlier, especially after media reports and then an internal investigation concluded that Maryland's football program under Durkin, and I'm paraphrasing here, was pretty fucked up. The process that led to Durkin's firing was kind of the same. Rick Mace of the Washington Post has been covering the Durkin case. He joins us now. Hey, Rick. It's great to be here. Thanks for coming. Let's start with some background. Jordan McNair's death may have been caused, at least in part, by a football culture established by Durkin since he was hired almost three years ago that has been revealed as, at least in part, physically and psychologically abusive of players. Give us a quick synopsis of the circumstances that led to McNair collapsing and dying on the field and the investigations that followed. Sure, sure. So we go back to May 29th. It's the first day of kind of spring workouts for the University of Maryland, and they're kind of doing conditions tests, baseline tests to see where players are at, um, you know, what they need to work on a little bit more. And they're doing uh, sprints. They're doing 110-yard sprints. They're supposed to be a series of, I believe, 10. And on the seventh one, Jordan McNair, this 19-year-old uh, offensive lineman, um, is clearly struggling, unable to complete it. And it turns out he's suffering from heat stroke. Um, the, the trainers are kind of slow to respond. They're, they're slow to treat him. They never diagnose him. They never properly treat him for the heat stroke. Um, and he's taken to a hospital where he basically stays for 15 days before he finally um, – he never recovers and he dies in the hospital. Maryland didn't sort of jump into a, a deep dive investigation of what happened, though. It was really the media that sort of catalyzed the attention on whether there was something wrong with, A, the way McNair was treated on that day, and B, within the Maryland football program. Well, I'd say yes and no. Um, there's very little information coming out in the days and weeks that followed uh, Jordan um, you know, falling down at practice. Um, they, they never came out and said, this is what happened to him. This is his condition. Here's what um, the, the, the prognosis is for him. So there was certainly uncertainty. In the absence of uncertainty, there's a lot of speculation. Right. So um, I think behind the scenes after Jordan died, they did 
pretty quickly launch an independent review into the circumstances surrounding his death. Um, but there were no, there was little transparency there. There were no regular updates to the media, to the public. And it really wasn't until August 10th when ESPN publishes a story that kind of catalogs a lot of other disturbing behavior, allegations around the program, that really the story started resonating and, and transcending this one player, this one program. And a lot more questions started flying around then. And then things started to move a lot quicker. Well, Durkin didn't get put on administrative leave until after that ESPN story the next day, yeah. came out. Um, and I think the assumption was from a lot of folks that he wasn't going to come back, that this is not something that you recover from, a big investigation like this that shows kind of in the, in the parlance of the NCAA, a lack of institutional control, a lack of control over a program that um, leads to a player dying and where it seems like there's systematic, um, you know, berating of players, things that feel abusive. And the use so, of food to sort of denigrate players for either being overweight or not strong enough. So my assumption was that you, at, when something like this comes up, you, um, you ask for an investigation in order to give you permission or sanction to get rid of someone. Um, but that's not when it, what ended up happening here. No, and it, it's it's complicated. So at the simplest level, we have two separate things. We have a young player dying uh, during a football practice, and then you have this this culture of bullying behavior and abuse and and um, you know all these heinous things. Now, on a more complex level, are they connected? And that's what they were trying to figure out through through the course of investigations. So. I'm not sure they ever drew that line clearly. I'm not right. sure that they, they reached that conclusion ultimately. But what they wanted to do was find out, was DJ Durkin somehow responsible, um, A, for the culture of the program, which, of course, you are on, on just about every level, and B, for did that con- culture contribute to this, this young man's death? It's hard to escape the conclusion that it did. I mean, DJ Durkin hired the strength coach that, was, that has been sort of pegged as the the abuser in chief here, the most aggressive and insulting um, and dehumanizing uh, uh, actor vis-a-vis these kids, these athletes. And Durkin said that was his most important hire, and he um, made it so that on the org chart, this guy reported directly to him, right? And that's the guy he wanted to establish the culture, this, you know, balls-to-the-wall, uber-masculine kind of football Um, angry man culture. So DJ Durkin and the university president Wallace Lowe and the athletic director meet with the Maryland Board of Regents in late October. And according to your reporting, Durkin strikes the board as, quote, genuine acknowledging problems and discussing solutions. You know, they, they sort of buy into what DJ Durkin is selling. And it's after reading your and and other reports, It really feels to me like, look, they wanted to find a way to keep this guy because the culture of hiring in college football, you don't want to – you want to believe that you made a good decision and you want to have this impression of, you know, this image of toughness that DJ Durkin supposedly brought to the University of Maryland. But what's hilarious about it is, of course, is that, look, A, the investigative report made some excuses for Durkin, said he was a first-time coach, he didn't get enough institutional support, and B, that they walked out of that, you know, the meeting believing his his spiel. You know, football coaches are bullshitters, if nothing else. They're salesmen. They sell parents, they sell players, they sell the media. So, of course, these starstruck Board of Regents, old white guys, 
were inclined, predisposed, I think, to walk away believing in DJ Durkin and wanting to keep him. Well, at the least we know they were open-minded, right? Because we know that, that everyone walked in there. He changed some minds and enough minds where they felt like they had a majority and could move forward with a vote. But I think you're right. I think uh, a lot of people might think of a football coach as an X's and O's guys, especially at the collegiate level. They are salespeople. They, they have a message they want to get out there. They want to get that message to a recruit, to a booster. They want to get it to a fan base. That's a big part of the job in college football. So it's no surprise that um, you know, a young, energetic coach can walk in a room and easily sway um, or be persuasive at least um, you know, the, this group of regents. And clearly you know, no one's had any shame in admitting that's what happened. He went in there and changed some minds, got them on his side, and they decided this guy's um, – he made some mistakes, but he's the one that can fix these mistakes and he deserves to come back. In your reporting, what's your sense of how much financial considerations played into this? Because he had, they would have had to pay him a buyout and that's what they're going to end up having to do now once the decision was reversed. I would say that no one has formally told us that it played any role. And in fact, they said the opposite. Now, the cynic in me says... That's crazy. How, how do you make this kind of decision and it, it not play a major role? But we know boosters were, um, you know, writing letters to regents and certainly trying to, to leverage their influence um, from, from the start of this thing. In which direction? The um, boosters all wanted to keep him? Well, they, the athletic boosters are, were certainly lined up behind DJ Durkin from day one. They, they liked the chummy relationship they had with the football coach. They did not think that the, the culture of Maryland was different than any other Big Ten program or any other kind of big college program. But you got to remember the athletic booster is not the end-all, be-all. In the, in the academic world, higher ed, there's the, the, the donor that's like kind of the mega donor, the big fish donor. And they were also in the air and they were lined up firmly behind Wallace Lowe. That's the one who courted those big seven, eight figure uh, donations that, you know, if you walk around campus, and you see the names on the building. Those guys are bigger fish than the athletic mm -hmm. booster. And so they were certainly, you know, in the ear of, of regents and the chancellor and other people as well saying, hey, I, mean, I might not care as much what you do with the football program. It's embarrassing, but you got to take care of the school president. He's important here. So how much influence all these people have? Who knows? I mean, the regents ultimately did what they're going to do. So they walk out of this meeting and the regents deliver a message that they want to keep DJ Durkin. And basically, it sounds like it was an ultimatum to Wallace Lowe, the university president. And Lowe decides he has the authority on whether to hire or fire the football coach. He decides to keep him, keeps the athletic director, and Lowe announces that he's the one that's going to retire early next spring. Um, Lowe's role here is fascinating because this is a guy that has raised an enormous sums of money, enormous sums of money for the University of Maryland. He was also the architect of Maryland's moving from the ACC conference where it had been for 60 years to the Big Ten, driven entirely by the prospect of receiving tens of millions of dollars more in revenue, which at the time in 2012, when the decision was made, he described as a way to solidify and preserve Maryland's football and other sports programs. Oh, yeah. I mean, from, from the beginning, he was a huge figure of intrigue. And certainly there were, there were things about his own actions that, that ruffled a lot of feathers. People did not like the way he came out and took moral and legal responsibility um, almost from day one or at least when – For Jordan McNair's death. For Jordan McNair's death. Um, certainly we've heard from a lot of uh, people close to the border regions that they were not happy with the way uh, Wallace Lowe has handled previous things. And they, if they trusted him more – 
I don't think they would have taken over control of these these investigations, and ultimately the decision would have would have remained in College Park from the beginning. The fact is they didn't trust him to to kind of do the right thing and to hold the the athletic department accountable, at least the way they saw fit. So he was a huge figure of intrigue from day one, and uh, you know he still is. His his status with the university is still very much in question. There are still people lined up on both sides that that love him, that hate him, um, that think he's that think he's part of the problem that got the football program and the athletic department to this point in the first place because of moving to the Big Ten. That's a huge part of it. Um, you know, the, the identity of the athletic department has always been up in question. And you, you go from ACC and a basketball-heavy uh, school to the Big Ten, that, that angered a lot of people, a lot of old-time Maryland fans and ACC people, including people on the border regions, um, you know, and people that, that were very close to this process from day one. So he made a, a lot of enemies, I'd say that. And then the other big issue was the renaming of Birdfield and um, for people that aren't aren't familiar, the the name of the the football field the the Maryland football team plays on was named after a former school president, someone who's highly regarded and was super impactful, but also was like a noted segregationist. And uh, at some point, Wallace Lowe and, and other university officials questioned, you know, should we be honoring this person in in this manner? And ultimately, they they had a very contentious. Uh, a disagreement over the issue. Wallace Lowe really pushed forward with renaming the field, and that angered a lot of people, including James Brady, the board chair and the man who's probably gotten the most heat for pushing this all through. This is a culture war issue like so many other things. And in this case, the activists who ended up um, kind of changing the tenor of the conversation were the players. I mean, the first outside kind of move, as we said, that got DJ Durkin put on leave was this ESPN report. And it wasn't just like ESPN got the stuff out of thin air. They got stuff from players on the team who gave them this information about how they were treated. I mean, whistleblowers, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And then after um, it came out that Durkin was going to stay, that the Board of Regents had made its decision, um, players put their names behind it. This was not anonymous. They went on social media. Ellis McKinney, who was a high school teammate of Jordan McNair's, wrote, Every Saturday, my teammates and I have to kneel before the memorial of our fallen teammate, yet a group of people do not have the courage to hold anyone accountable for his death. If only they could have the courage that Jordan had. It's never the wrong time to do what's right. Uh, Jordan McNair's father also came out and said, I feel like I've been punched in the summit stomach and somebody spit in my face about the decision to um, allow uh, Durkin to stay on. This obviously must have had an enormous effect on what the ultimate outcome was. I think it did. And if we go back to that Tuesday when they announced that Durkin's coming back, um, you know, I had a lot of people in my ears because, you know, the the public reaction was moving fast and furious. And one person close to the, the team said, Rick, you better have your eyes open because there could be a player boycott. This guy was not universally loved. And there are a lot of people that didn't just not love him. They actively despise him because they think he contributed to the death of their teammate. Um, I ran that by a few other people. And they said, Rick, you're crazy. That's that's impossible now because this decision, if it highlights anything, it's that the head coach is untouchable. He is all powerful. And yet the next day, Wallace Lowe basically, and who knows whether he was playing you know, 3D chess with the Board of Regents, anticipating that the governor and the players and fans and other supporters and the media would widely condemn the decision to keep Durkin. But Wallace Lowe comes out and says, I'm firing him. Um, yeah, you mentioned it in passing, but Republican governor of the state, Larry Hogan, in the middle of like uh, an election, comes out strongly against Durkin, which surprised me. I mean, I don't know the like dynamics of Maryland politics yeah. super intimately, so maybe people who do 
Um, that wouldn't surprise them. But that was like a pretty big thing to happen in the middle of this I as think well. it was kind of surprising. I mean, Hogan had appointed multiple members of the Board of most, Regents. Most of These the are board. buddies of his yeah. and people that actually work in the administration, right? Yeah. I mean, the board chair, James Brady, was uh, the transition chief when Hogan took office four years ago. Um, most of these were appointed by Hogan. And I, I guess when you, you go back to Tuesday when the board made its decision, Larry Hogan's initial statement was kind of, you know, lukewarm. The next day as everything's going crazy, he comes out with a much more forceful statement. He saw and which way the wind was blowing. He probably did. And he knew election day was less than a week away. And you don't want anything. I mean, granted, he's got a 20-point lead, you know, uh, according to polls. Mm-hmm. But you don't want anything to, to, to kind of compromise that. But he clearly saw the way where, where feelings lied. And he, he felt like he had to be on the right side of it and issued a much stronger statement. And it surprised me as well. Um, players did walk out of their first meeting with Durkin when he came back to the locker room. Your colleague Jerry Brewer, a columnist for The Post, interviewed Harry Edwards, a sociologist and activist who, who's, who's, whose work in sports dates back to 50 years ago, 1968, the Olympic boycott by Tommy Smith and John Carlos. He pointed out that ultimately this really is a sign that players do have power and that they need to recognize that they have power. And Edwards posited that this could be the first sort of, of a wave of, of player understanding that they have the power in college sports, that they have been told for generations that they do not have. After Durkin was fired, a linebacker on the team named Trey Watson wrote on Twitter, pressure busts pipes, doesn't it? And then McKenney added, most certainly does. Don't let anyone tell you your voice doesn't matter. Yeah, it was very moving. And I, I tell you, it was, I felt much differently four or five weeks ago where I, I talked to a lot of players that felt like they suffered um, abuse uh, pl- playing in the program. And, you know, I kept saying, why didn't you speak out sooner? And there's just so much fear there. And the power imbalance is tilted so far in one direction that um, they, they, they felt like they risked losing so much. And one player in particular I talked to, he did end up leaving the program early. I think he stayed for two years. Feels, feels like he suffered from mental health, had to go on medication, um, and, and ultimately left the program. And the, just the way his life has changed since then. I mean, you go from getting a free scholarship to a big flagship university where your food's all provided, you have the great weight room, everything's kind of catered to you, and he's now taking out student loans to pay for school. He had to get a job to pay for his housing. His, his mom had to get a loan to, to help keep things afloat. Um, you just risk losing so much by speaking out, and it's just going to take a lot more of, of instances like this where players can kind of come together and um, unify or, around an issue or a cause and speak up until people start recognizing both, both the players themselves and outsiders that they really do um, you know, have some muscle in, in these conversations. Two final thoughts from me. The first is that the really sad and unfortunate thing here that I don't think you can actually extend broadly across college campuses is that I think in order for the players to get um, mass support, it took Jordan McNair dying. Like if all of the same fact pattern had held up, and I'm pretty sure that it does at a lot of schools across the country, I don't think you would get support from the governor of Maryland or from supporters of the program or from the school president to change anything. Um, And so, you know, we'll see if maybe players at other schools will will try to speak out and, and get a different lesson if um, the, you know circumstances are different. But- and, and I think it's also worth saying that we'll see whether university presidents take something away from this and maybe begin to recognize that sports aren't 
as Mike Sokolov, who was on the show a couple weeks ago, argued in an op-ed in the Post, sports shouldn't be the front porch of a university, that presidents can step back and put sports into the proper context. The financial pressures are so great, and I don't see those changing anytime soon, but university presidents have a lot more authority than I think they understand in sort of reshaping the culture of their campuses. I mean, the sad reality is that if the trainers did their job that day and brought down Jordan McNair's temperature, I don't think we're having this conversation. And we certainly didn't have this controversy and the whistleblowers don't step forward and the, the regents don't take up the matter. And I mean, I, I love finding silver lining in things and hopefully there is something here at the end of the day. But I'm still, we watched this game last week and I'm still stuck on these, these teammates that, you know, there, there's no silver lining for them right now still. I mean, they lost their teammate, their friend, their, their roommate in some instances, and there's no bringing them back. And that should not have been the case. Yeah, the last thing I wanted to say was, and I forget where I first ran across this idea. I think maybe Tom Skoka retweeted it. Um, but you could argue that the original sin here is Maryland trying to be good at football. Right. Because it's a lacrosse school. It's a basketball school. There's not a great tradition of football success there. It seems like Wallace Lowe, maybe he did the right thing here in the end, but he was you know, largely responsible for chasing the Big Ten dollars. And just this idea that we're going to build this program out of, I mean, Ralph Friedgen had some success there, but out of like not that much of a tradition, we're going to need this like young up and coming, hard charging coach to come in here and make us tough and build us up in a way we've never been built up before. And maybe we'll have to cut some corners or or something to to get there because we're in the Big Ten now and we're a, a football school. That to me, like, there could have been an alternate history here along the lines of what you said about what the trainers did, where the school is like, let's really focus on these other sports um, and just not really care about well, football that or much. Or if we're going to have football, let's have an ethical humane well that's not possible program. let's just not have foot let's just not have division three or i don't know i mean there's clearly there's misplaced priorities and i think this really highlighted a lot of them but if we did polling around the, the subject and we talked to alums and and fans and students and even faculty i mean i don't know what the solution is i don't know what people would all rally rally behind because certainly i've heard from a lot of people that said eliminate football but a lot of others that's still it is the face of the university and they yep. still really value and appreciate the the relationship the school has with its uh, its athletic programs Rick Mace is a sports writer for The Washington Post. Rick, thanks for coming on the show. Sure thing. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to Nathan Peterman, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Stefan and I will be joined by Slate's Nick Green, who we're going to hear from in a second. Uh, we're going to discuss Saints wide receiver Michael Thomas's cell phone celebration. It was an homage to a classic celebration of your one that is both near and dear to this particular New Orleanian's heart. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. Going into this week's game against the Chicago Bears, Buffalo Bills quarterback Nathan Peterman told reporters, you just got to keep your confidence high 
be the same player that you've been all along and go out there and rip it. In Buffalo's 41-9 loss to Chicago on Sunday, Peterman, who was starting because the Bills' top two quarterbacks were injured, definitely was the same player that he's been all along. He threw three interceptions. He generally looked incompetent in a way that NFL quarterbacks don't in this modern pass-happy age. Joining us now to discuss the Nathan Peterman experience is Nick Green, who writes about sports for Slate. What a great day to be a Nathan Peterman fan, Nick. Well, every day is a great day to be a Nathan Peterman fan, to be honest. Um, And I think maybe to go on on that, each day is better than the next. Each interception is better than the next. (laughs) He brings a kind of joy, I think, to the NFL watching populace that the greatest players cannot. There's just a majesty. Um, and I think Kevin Clark of The Ringer really captured this well yesterday in tweeting, um, the ghosts of every great deceased quarterback could parade onto the field in Cleveland and start playing while simultaneously divulging the secrets of the afterlife. And there is zero chance I will turn away from this Nathan Peterman game. Um, Nick, you've written, I think, Several stories at this point just uh, are based around horrible Nick Pe- uh, Nathan Peterman uh, performances. <laughs> Nick Peterman, Nathan Peterman performances. <laughs> why? What is your analysis of why um, watching Nathan uh, Peterman is such great sport? Well, I mean, there's historically uh, this is something that we're just not used to seeing. He's thrown 133 passes total in regular season and playoffs, and 13 of those have been interceptions, which is an extremely high uh, rate. Yesterday against the Bears, he threw three interceptions uh, and had a pretty dreadful game, and his passer rating, his career passer rating, actually went up by around two points. So what we saw yesterday was actually a decent performance, but I, I... I've gone from kind of being amused by him to feeling bad for him, and now I just really admire him. I mean, there's a there's a innocence in Nathan oh, Peterman totally. that is so refreshing. After the game on Sunday in his news conference, he said nobody's perfect, and I think he was right. I think it's <laughs> you, you pretty much that's true. That's hard to argue, but it, it's that combination of innocence and absolute terribleness that make Nathan Peterman such. A, a captivating figure in the NFL in a time, as you as you alluded to, Josh, this pass-happy age where we're so used to seeing quarterbacks perform at this crazy high level. You know, Drew Brees and Jared Goff on Sunday throwing the ball in these incredibly tight places and throwing for like 15 touchdowns combined. And it's this beautiful, balletic, wonderful style of football. And then Nathan Peterman, meanwhile, is... Completing 31 passes on Sunday, by the way, in 49 attempts, which would be very good if those passes had gone for more than 189 yards and three of them didn't end up in the opposing team's hands. Yeah, to complete that many passes for that small amount of yards is also historic. Um, Doug Farrar of USA Today wrote a piece building an argument that's like Seems pretty rock solid Ironclad. that Nathan Peterman is the worst quarterback in NFL history, <laughs> just if you look relative to his era. Like you mentioned the interception rate, Nick, it's around between 9 and 10%. Deshaun Kaiser um, in the last couple of years, 
who was benched for being so terrible for the Browns, is second in interception rate, and his is 4.76. There's a little bit of a leap there, yeah. It's a little bit of a leap. And you have to go back to the 1970s um, for our mentions, a quarterback named Wayne Clark, who threw 14 interceptions and no touchdowns for the Chargers and uh, Bengals from... 1970 through 1974, this in an era when like interceptions were a thing that were thrown with more regularity. But what I would say, Nick, you know, having watched the Saints Rams and and Breeze and Goff, you know, you mentioned the balletic nature of the play and you've got, um, you know, beautiful timing throws and throwing the ball before the guy gets out of his break. But there are also cases like, um, you know, a lot of what the Saints success was on Sunday is. Um, you know, the quarterback avoiding getting sacked and Breeze would be under pressure from Aaron Donald, who's the best defensive player in football. And he would find like a safety valve. He would fling it out to Alvin Kamara. He would throw it to the tight end Josh Hill for like a five-yard completion. And so even when things break down totally, the skill of the great quarterback, is it's not that it necessarily looks beautiful every time. It's that you avoid negative plays. And the, the genius of Nathan Peterman is that even when things are actually looking perfect and have, um, and Boletic, he actually turns that into negative plays. So he turns the like, be- the beautiful game ugly. And then when it gets ugly, it really gets ugly. I, I, I might be, this is, might be like a little Nathan Peterman, uh, Stockholm syndrome. Um, but two of his three interceptions yesterday weren't his fault. Right. Uh, the Bills line is just terrible. That being said, uh, after I think this has been eight or nine starts of or of this or appearances of this, I think we've seen enough. Um, well, Josh Allen and, and, and Derek Anderson aren't as bad as as he is. I mean, they're not good, but you know we've seen uh, that there is like there is a controlled variable here, being the Buffalo Bills, and then the the variable that we're changing out is the quarterback. And those two guys aren't looking as horrible. Yeah, well, it's 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 also going back to the. Um, <laughs> The press conferences, uh, I, I always, everyone always hates when when athletes use cliches, uh, you know, give 110%, go back, look at the tape, you got to keep trying, keep pushing. Um, Nathan Peterman delivers those same ones, but there's something just amazing and kind of lovable about it when he does it, because when you are, you know, I guess, as some would point out, the worst quarterback of all time, hearing them say that with a smile and kind of chipper demeanor is just a wonderful thing. And I am a full-fledged Nathan Peterman fanatic. Have you bought anything from the uh, Nathan Peterman store? He has a line of, uh, of apparel. No, but Christmas is coming. Yes, NathanPeterman.MyShopify.com. Nathan-Peterman. Um, it's, he's got a collection Nathan of Peterman t-shirts. NathanPeterman.MyShopify.com was already taken, so Nathan-Peterman. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that was taken by me, actually. Um, I'm just kind of squatting Fresh on that one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but he's got the, he's the got graphic three, design. He's got three logos. Nathan Peterman's got three logos. Um, That's more than Federer has. Yeah, and and I gotta say, they're pretty classy. He also goes by Nate Peterman. Did we already mention that? And no. the, and the uh, uh, on this merchandise, and so maybe he sees himself as a Nate, but he plays like a Nathan. <laughs> Do you think that kind of split identity could be leading to some some of his problems, Nick? Yeah, I think um, it's similar to the Wayne Clark situation you were talking about earlier. That was actually Wayne Newton who suited up for, uh, I think it was Dallas back then. So there's a similar kind of dichotomy uh, between the two. Um, I, I think, I, I, to 
go back to defending Nathan Peterman, which is, I guess, I'm going to adopt that as my kind of my corner here. Uh, he was put in the worst possible situation, probably of any quarterback I can remember last year when he made his debut. The Bills were 5-4, and four, and Coach Sean McDermott inexplicably decided to bench Tyrod Taylor, who was their starter. And while not a great quarterback, he was decent and kind of ironically famous for not throwing interceptions and not turning the ball over. And he decided to just put Nathan Peterman in for reasons that I think baffle the universe to this day. Um, at the time, he said, we were made for more than 5-4, and four, and I've come here to be more than 5-4, and four, which is kind of... Um, just sort of obnoxious coach speak. And then Nathan Peterman, with the backing of pretty much no one in Buffalo or the universe, threw five interceptions in the first half and sort of cemented his legacy uh, right then and there. So and I he's feel continued bad to start him. games since then. Yeah, that part I can't defend. <laughs> well, and, and you know, we, we joke about how lovable Nathan Peterman is and that we would dress our babies in a Nate Peterman onesie. Those are available, I think, 1999, Nate Peterman onesie. Um, but on a football level, there are a lot of heads, no doubt. Everyone is not sharing in this joyful experience. Among them, E.J. Manuel, who posted on Instagram and then deleted... I usually never open up about my situation in Buffalo, but the fact that this guy has had multiple games with four-plus interceptions and I still don't have a job in the league, unreal. Say what you want about me, but never have I ever done that. Forget a learning curve. I didn't get the luxury of being able to use that as an excuse. I wonder why. And I also think the wonder why might be applicable to say why Buffalo may not have been interested in bringing in Colin Kaepernick for a tryout. Well, E.J. Manuel's black. Tyrod Taylor, who got benched, is black. Colin Kaepernick, black. Um, I put in my notes, um, Stefan, maybe you Nathan can... Nathan Peterman's white, by the way. You should mention that for maybe listeners you can, Maybe you can know. read what I wrote uh, in my notes here. <laughs> Double agent paid for by Colin Kaepernick? Just a theory. Like, on Twitter during these games... About half of um, the comments are about how bad Peterman is, and legitimately half are about Colin Kaepernick and how this proves his collusion, collusion case. case that somebody like Nathan Peterman can start. And obviously, Nathan Peterman is the third string guy and was only play- they didn't want to play him. But well, they wh- did want to play him. Why last is he on the he roster? Also, Why is he on the roster he, in the first place? He started the he started the first game of the season. He was the he was named starter for the season. So. Good point. Um, Good point. Yeah. Um, But if Nathan Peterman did not exist, he is really setting the bar so low. I think that the NFL colluded against Kaepernick. I think that he has a really strong case. I think the teams didn't want to sign him for political reasons. But to argue, um, it's like if you removed Peterman from the – conversation and just like looked around the rest of the league at the guys that are playing there's nobody that's like that that's obviously that bad like it's it's like this it's like so far below the bottom of the barrel what this guy is doing and like so many standard deviations below um it just i don't i don't really know where i'm going with this it just feels like maybe the collusion case if you're gonna cite bad quarterback play as uh part of a collusion case I think you really have to uh, rest your case on on Peterman because otherwise, is there such a th- is there such a thing as a overabundance of evidence though? <laughs> <'Cause>, Overdetermined. <laughs> yeah, is this? I mean, are we kind of 
is this, are the scales tipped so much that uh, it's kind of we're blind to the the reality here because this is this is just too much. I don't know, Stefan. Do you feel like Peterman at this point? You know, we're all rooting for the guy. Maybe we're not actually rooting for the guy. I don't know how I feel. It's very complicated. But do you feel like the Bills just really need to get rid of him, uh, or like- should the Bills continue to bank on the you know the free publicity they get from playing? Nathan That's Peterman interesting. And people talk about him. It's not like the Buffalo Bills are the most marketable franchise in the NFL. They may have hit on something here. Whenever he comes in a game or when he plays, he's always the number one trending topic in the country on Twitter. Um, and these are games that are, you know, kind of regional games that don't get national broadcasts, obviously, except for that Sunday when he came in to replace Derek Anderson against the Patriots. Um, he delivers. He's, he's a star. And uh, maybe that's part of it. I just don't know how we could have possibly seen this coming, given that his first start ever when he was at Tennessee, he was four for 11 for five yards and two interceptions. It's just how could somebody with that track record in college? How good, in air quotes, did he get at the University of Pittsburgh? So drafted by his senior year, he completed 60 percent of his passes and had 27 touchdowns and seven interceptions. That's not bad. So seven interceptions, kind of a kind of a day's work for him. He, he he looks I mean he's like he's a big tall guy I guess in the workouts he had a, a good arm um all his <laughs> he had an arm <laughs> he had an arm which uh you kind of is will it's for better or for worse he has an arm that's for sure uh so he's kind of like this person that is uh physically a quarterback but I think just the actual kind of mental mechanics maybe of being a quarterback or just a little bit beyond him, but he doesn't get down. It's not like he has, he clearly has amnesia, uh, which is, I guess, a good quality for other quarterbacks when you kind of forget your last bad play and keep going. But for him, there's the amnesia followed by uh, sort of the same pattern of Nathan Peterman-ness. Nick Green writes about sports for Slate. Nathan Peterman plays quarterback for the Buffalo Bills. At least he did as of Sunday. Nick, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The WNBA is 22 years old, employs the best women's basketball players in the world, is on ESPN, and has loyal fans, among them NBA players who tweet out praise and invite players onto their HBO shows, as LeBron James did with Elena Deladon on his talk show, The Shop. But the league is still a money loser, and its players are fed up with low pay, minor league travel conditions, and weak marketing. Last week, in an effort to improve working conditions, the WNBA Players Union announced it is opting out of its labor agreement. Joining us now to discuss that move and the future of the WNBA is Mirren Fader. She's a writer at large for Bleacher Report magazine. Mirren, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, Let's talk first about the decision to opt out. This seems like a fairly big one for a league that is struggling in some aspects, but also seems like one that the players decided was necessary to take right at this time. 
it's pretty historic. I think that players have reached a point that they feel like they can't continue on it as it is currently. I think they understand the financial realities that, you know, might prevent higher salaries, but, you know, nonetheless, they're, they're really fighting at this point. And a lot of what they're arguing for is um, stuff that is not, um, you know, the the weekly paycheck or the biweekly paycheck. I don't know how uh, uh, accounts payable works in uh, the WNBA, <laughs> but things like um, flights and things like, you know, conditions at, uh, you know, the team facility and things of that nature. Can you describe for us what um, these specific complaints are and how they want them addressed? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, if people look at this art, this, this issue and don't really understand it, they think, oh, they're asking for the same kind of astronomical amounts that the men's players in the NBA are receiving. And it's not true. Um, what they really want is a higher share of their own revenue. So WNBA players receive about 22% and NBA players receive about 50%. Um, so that's a disparity right there, even though the two businesses aren't comparable in the sense that, you know, the NBA generates uh, 9 billion and WNBA will generate less than 1% of that. So they're looking for a higher share of the revenue. Like you mentioned, travel, um, you know, they, they still fly commercial. And for these women who need to be in top flight shape, um, they're not getting the rest they need. They're not getting the travel accommodations they need to play their best basketball. Um, so that's a major thing. And I think Neka Agumake, uh, the president of the WNBA PA executive committee told me this is infrastructural. So they're really looking to change the way the attitude with which, um, the NBA and the WNBA leadership looks in investment in this league. Um, it's very much an attitude thing and not just a numbers thing. But the numbers are important, I think. And I think putting them in context is really important because what typically happens when women's at, when women athletes, say that they want to be paid more is that instantly the retrograde sports fan, male sports fan says, well, they're not as good and they don't, nobody watches them and they don't make, they're not, they don't play as well. Look, they're just playing below the rim. And those sort of bullshit arguments are perpetuated. And I think it's really important and instructive the way that this union has decided to make a stand. Similarly, similar, I think, to the way that the women's national soccer team union decided to take a stand a couple of years ago and bring out publicly the state of their working conditions and the state of their pay. Um, and I think that the, the more they can say something like, look, we get 22% of the revenue, that's the estimate, versus 50% for the men, is the most compelling argument for for finding ways to to elevate their status as professional athletes. I mean, absolutely. And and that's why, as you mentioned earlier, you know, the NBA players have done a good job in, in vocalizing this fight too. Um, I think that people don't really, I think a lot of people were surprised to hear that like rookies in the WNBA were making $40,000 as a professional basketball player. And so I think it's just, um, there's so much ignorance out there. And so um, WNBA players are, are really sick of operating in, in what they call a, a near media blackout where women are covered just 4% of the time. So they're saying, listen, this is what we're going through. This is what we're not going to accept anymore. And this is how we need to move forward as a league or else things will honestly just continue to stay the same. All right. So let's make the best argument for the other side, um, just in the interest of um, of hearing that argument. And what Adam Silver told you, Mirren, was... The commissioner of the NBA. Um, thank you, Stefan. The tickets are very inexpensive, but even at low prices, 
we're not selling enough tickets to run a viable business. At the end of the day, the consumer always wins. And right now, we don't have a winning consumer proposition. And I'm frustrated with that. The NBA um, has a huge stake in the success of the WNBA. It's a 50% ownership stake. And they've been trying um, to make the WNBA work as a business for 22 years. And it's never made money. Um, And so the argument that the other side will make in this labor negotiation is, um, you know, we need to grow this pie before we can start talking about increasing salaries and, um, you know, having better perks for players. Hiring charter jets. Yeah. So um, what would the what would the players response be to that? The player's response is that, well, you're not investing enough in our league in order for us to make a profit, right? So the NBA is saying, no, this is not a gender issue. This is a purely dollars issue. You don't make money. So therefore, why as a business would we pour more money into something that isn't making money? The players are saying, no, business is you have to invest properly and pour money into something in order for it to succeed and grow. Um, They pointed to the current G League uh, salary situation. So the NBA just recently announced that they would pay um, G League players, high school elite athletes, um, more than the max WNBA salary if that high school player would join the G League for a year instead of going to college, the one and done thing. So WNBA players are looking at this and they're like, you're investing in them and not us. We are in need of similar investments. And where I think the WNBA has a good case is to build a better relationship and make the players part of the branding and marketing and growth of the league. You know, traditionally, sports leagues have relied on their own internal marketing departments working independently of players, and players work independently of the league by negotiating their own sponsorships and shoe deals and other forms of, of, uh, of contractually you know, beneficial arrangements. Where a league like the WNBA that has struggled for so long could make real inroads into sort of rethinking and reformulating the way sports leagues operate would be to, you know, to really have a, a sincere, genuine, you know, dollars connected spark partnership with its players to say, you know, to throw a challenge to the players. Look, if you think the league can be more successful and generate more revenue, help us do it. Make us real partners. I mean, I think that's a good idea. I, th- I think one player um, made a great point in my piece, Elizabeth Williams. She said, look, we're in this era of Me Too. Strong women are everywhere. Why can't we get a company to invest in us in this way? Why can't we be marketed in such a way? Um, I think if their own input is valued, I think you will see different ways they're going to be marketed. I think the WNBA traditionally has been so confused on how to market this league throughout its 22 years. You know, one minute they're dressing them up in full, you know, dolled up and makeup. And the next minute they're saying, no, 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 we're athletes. Basketball is basketball. We're just like the NBA. But then they have a different, you know, colored basketball and all these things. So I think that if you have players in the room and you have leadership that actually has ties within the sports business community, the the president, Lisa Borders, who stepped down, this was not exactly her um, arena of expertise, then I think you will get more fruitful results in terms of marketing and partnerships. I don't know if I've ever heard your theory on this, Stefan. I'm going to put you on the spot. But mm-hmm. why do you think um, women's soccer or the U.S. women's soccer team in particular is m- so much more popular than women's basketball? And, you know, the the top women's soccer players are going to have a higher Q rating and you, 
you know, the attendance is, is higher. I mean, obviously the pro league has, has struggled. So that's a, yeah, I mean, a separate issue. But why do you think soccer and basketball are appear to be on different trajectories? Well, I think the main reason is that there is this unifying event every four years that the United States is great at. Um, and the United States is great at in comparison to the men. The women's soccer team, the, the U.S. women's soccer team, has been the best in the world for, you know, for, for, for 20, 30 years now. I mean, since women's soccer became a thing and the U.S. men have not had that attention. But it really is the, the quadrennial World Cup that I think has made them the sort of bona fide celebrities that they, that they can become and given them the marketing opportunities that they've had. At the qualifiers for next summer's Women's World Cup, the qualifying tournament for CONCACAF was held in the United States. There were not a lot of people at these games. Yeah. Um, so, young- so it, I mean, it really is the sort of the, the the this world celebrity that can focus on them every four years, I think. And I don't think women's basketball has that. Yeah. So young women, Mirren, they're looking at who want to play basketball. They're looking up to LeBron James, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, and that's as it should be. Um, and LeBron James is also telling folks, you know, you should be watching Maya Moore and Elena Deladon and, and Candace Parker. But how do you, how do you feel about what Stefan just laid out there in terms of the differences between say basketball and soccer? I mean, I think those are good points. I, I also think though, um, it's, it's not like the regular, um, you know, women's soccer league in the U S is drawing huge crowds no. too. I I think that they face very similar challenges that WNBA players do. But, you know, I think overall, when you're a young girl and you're looking at what sport to play and if you want to play it seriously, they're looking at these WNBA players and they're saying like half the year they're in some foreign country by themselves. That's not glamorous. I don't want to do that. That's not sustainable. They're not given a model to look at that. Um, and by the way, just, you know, for people who don't know is they're going overseas, obviously to supplement their income. So women get paid much more overseas. Um, even though now that money is, is drying up. So, you know, if you're a young girl and you're seeing that, you're like, that's not exactly an attractive path for me. A lot of young women don't watch the WNBA. Like, like you mentioned, you know, they're looking up to the Curry's and LeBron's. I used to coach high school basketball on the side when I was first starting out in my journalism career. And I was amazed that none of my players knew who Pat Summit was, the legendary um, Tennessee women's basketball coach. So, you know, I think that there is just a lack of coverage of women that leads to this idea of just not knowing who the players are, not knowing where you can find their games, and therefore you're you're less likely to identify with them and, and want to invest in them. I think that's the strongest point that the players are making here and that you made as well, Miran. It's like the 4% of of coverage here when you like turn on sports center or um you know other highlight shows or even if you're looking on uh um, you know instagram or, or twitter or whatever act, like yeah. the way that people know <laughs> i'm gonna say something incredibly banal so please forgive me the way that you know about stuff is if you like watch it <laughs> and know about it true, true. Um, and so that i think is the existential issue here is just like how do you get it's it's marketing it's working with the league's broadcast partners it's getting stuff on social media in such a way that people are intrigued inspired whatever um you know term you want to use but it's also is a business question you know if you decide as i think the wnba smartly has in some markets that you're better off playing in a smaller arena. The Washington Mystics are going to be playing in a 4,200 seat arena next year rather than in the place where the Wizards play. 
because it makes more sense. You can sell it out, but it's going to depress your attendance. So the, the, the issue becomes how do you have a sustainable, highly paid league? Where do you get the revenue from? How do you get bigger? Um, because on the one hand, yes, Elena Deladon and Brittany Griner and Skylar Diggins-Smith deserve to be paid a lot more money. They shouldn't be jamming their bodies into coach. Um, they are they are they are elite athletes, and yet, what needs to happen to to get to that? You can't force ESPN to show more WNBA highlights. You can't force more kids to retweet WNBA gifts. I mean, this is true, but I, I do think it's like the article mentioned. It is very much an attitude thing. It's there isn't the same um, emphasis for these companies, these sports media outlets, these TV stations to have um, WNBA information available because they'll say, well, it doesn't make money. It doesn't sell all these things. But this is, again, this is a central tension of the piece. This is the chicken or the egg. How can it become popular if it's not on TV? But you can't be on TV unless you're popular. So that, that was really what I was trying to get after in the piece is that you have these really difficult working conditions with no immediate end in sight. But what I really was struck by was Adam Silver's comment to me that he doesn't feel that um, asking for more TV time on ESPN is necessarily the solution. He was, quote, frustrated by that demand. Um, And a lot of people wrote to me and, and were really surprised by that because TV and marketing, they, they go hand in hand. You know, if you can't see the players, you're not going to identify with them and you're not going to want to invest in them. So unless those things change, I just don't see salaries changing. Um, you know, I, I am a female sports writer in a male dominated field. Of course, I'm writing about the WNBA and the male counterparts are not. If you have more women sports writers, you might have more female content. So there's, there's just so many layers of media and marketing Mm -hmm. and things. And it's just, there's no immediate end in sight. Right. And it's obviously not ESPN's responsibility to do anything. Like it's up to, well, except that they're paying $25 million a season to show WNBA games. Right. But they don't have to show more highlights if they feel like people don't want to watch it. Like it's back to the chicken and egg thing. It's just like ESPN doesn't have like any kind of imperative because they feel like it's the right thing to do. Like the lever here, and that's what you were getting at, Mirren, which is kind of surprising. It's like the NBA has a lot of leverage where they could tell ESPN, you do actually have to show more WNBA highlights if you want this next right deal. You do have to show more games. You'd have to put them on more desirable channels and time slots. And that's why I actually found it surprising. It's like, okay, the WNBA lost $12 million dollars. The NBA made $9 billion in revenue. $12 million is not that big a deal. And so right. it was actually surprising to me to hear Adam Silver run down the league like that. The NBA obviously accrues some benefit from having the league in terms of, you know, it's it's good marketing for them to support women playing basketball. It's good and, if they re- and if they shut down the league or if the league failed, that wouldn't look good for the NBA. And so just for them to talk about it as purely a dollars and cents thing when the dollars and cents aren't that large seems like disingenuous and kind of weird to me. That struck me as the same problem with the way that U.S. soccer reacted when the women wanted more equitable pay vis-a-vis the men. Everything doesn't have to be profitable. It's certainly within the NBA's purview to say, hey, this isn't profitable. We don't care 
because it's valuable to our society to have a great women's basketball league that will showcase these amazing athletes for girls and fans who love it. Right. And I think what we're seeing now is, you know, WNBA players are really sick of hearing this kind of like, well, you can't get us these flights or you can't, um, you know, incur these losses to them. They, you know, they feel like a charity case. They feel like, oh, you're just, you just string us along because it's good PR for the NBA. Oh, we just exist. Um, be, be grateful you exist. And, and that was something that came up a lot. I mean, Adam Silver was like, um, you know, the, the idea that our conversation is about the future of the league is such a sign of progress. Normally I'm asked, will the WNBA exist tomorrow? And while that may be true, it's not enough anymore to survive. Um, you know, if they want to have a sustainable future for this league that actually turns a profit and that actually brings, you know, young girls wanting to uh, make a viable living at this, things are going to have to change. They, they can't just stay like this. Mirren Fader's piece for Bleacher Report magazine is titled Inside the WNBA's Fight for Higher Pay. We'll link to it on our show page. Mirren, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Now it is time for After Balls. Nathan Peterman. What more can you say? Here's a little more that I can say about Nathan Peterman. When he threw those five interceptions in his first start in one half, he tied the record set by Keith Null, the appropriately named Keith Null, of the Rams. I looked up what Keith Knoll is doing. He's actually going to start for the Bills next week. Now, uh, Keith Knoll, according to Wikipedia, is currently an associate pastor at Renew Life Church in Midland, Texas. And in 2014, he began to coach football to area kids at the Keith Knoll quarterback and receiver minicamp. So our future Buffalo Bill starters being trained uh, today. He's only 33. He's got time. Keith Knoll. Don't let him get you down, Keith. Don't let Stefan get you down. All the mean things he's been saying about you on the show. Stefan, what is your Keith Null? Well, it was another typical weekend of high school football, the usual dose of ambulances and airlifts, plus, of course, lots of prayers. Our thoughts and prayers are with Boonville sophomore QB John Daniel Deaton, who was injured in the third quarter and had to be taken to the hospital with a lower back injury. Prayers going up for injured Callaway football player Sherman Holmes. He left the game in an ambulance. How is the injured player that left on the stretcher? Prayers he is okay! Exclamation point. In Mississippi, a Greenville high school defensive back fractured his C1 and C4 vertebra on a helmet-to-helmet hit while making a tackle over the weekend. He was given CPR on the field, airlifted to a hospital, and placed on a ventilator. A prayer vigil was held the next night in the high school gym. It was at least the third time this season that a defensive back has broken his neck and stopped breathing while making a tackle. 
I learned all of that from Kent Johnson, the former high school football assistant and current gadfly whose retweets of America's Friday night lowlights I recited a few weeks back. He's also been tallying from news reports, catastrophic injuries and illnesses in youth high school and college football. Here are some numbers on that using his injury designations. Neck, 22 injuries, 7 paralyzed, brains, 12, one death, internal organs, 16, orthopedic, seven, one amputation, external heat, cardiovascular, nine, four fatal, and four autopsy reports pending. National data show that youth football participation is declining and searches like Johnson's are turning up other supporting figures, seasons canceled, games forfeited, games halted in progress. So far this year, Johnson has counted 42 schools that called off their seasons, 20 that suspended their seasons after one or more games, 82 that canceled or forfeited games in advance because of attrition or injuries, and 13 that halted games in progress for those reasons. That count is low. News reports don't pick up every forfeit. There have been at least five, for instance, in the D.C. Public Schools League this season. But Johnson's numbers are far higher this season than the ones that he accumulated for the previous two, which makes reading about aborted games like watching the demise of high school football in real time. The New York Times reported last week that Metuchen High School in New Jersey forfeited a game for lack of players for the first time in a history dating to the 1930s. The principal was quoted as saying, it never crossed my mind that we would ever not have enough kids to play a game. But as concern over brain and other injuries rises, more parents and kids are bailing on football. As a result, depleted rosters and forfeits are everywhere. San Diego, Lincoln, Nebraska, Flanagan, Illinois, Rudyard, Montana, where the high school forfeited a six-man football game. In Fort Dodge, Iowa, a forfeiting coach said, quote, some of our freshmen are 120 pounds and I don't want to put them out there, end quote. A forfeiting school in Nebraska that won the eight-man football state championship eight times between 1975 and 1990 had more boys go out for cross-country than football this year. A prep power in Massachusetts, Lawrence Academy, which had won four straight league titles, started this season with fewer than 30 players and has forfeited three games. A high school in Wilmington, Delaware, forfeited its last six games after losing the previous three by 132 to nothing. When it deflated its balls for the season, that school was down to 17 players. It started the season with just 26. It's reckless and negligent for coaches and administrators to allow football to be played with so few players, and it's not uncommon. There's no national roster minimum. Only a few states have one. You may have seen video of a high school team in Detroit walking off the field in the second quarter instead of lining up for an extra point. It was down to 15 players at the time. The coach of Richmond Heights High School in Ohio pulled his team off the field in the first quarter of a game against Kirtland for safety reasons. Richmond Heights had 17 players. Kirtland had 74. Ending the game was obviously the correct and ethical move, but football is football. So an official with Ohio's State Athletic Association said Richmond Heights might face disciplinary action for walking off the field. In Massachusetts, the superintendent of undefeated Everett High School was upset that rival Malden canceled the game for safety reasons because its roster was down to 39 players 
22 of them freshmen. Back when Malden dominated the rivalry in the 1980s, the superintendent said, quote, we never backed out of a game and came to play, and it's disappointing that they would take this away from these young gentlemen. Local writers also are not pleased that they won't be able to cover these young gentlemen playing football. A columnist for the Newburyport Daily News in Massachusetts complained that forfeits in the name of player safety were affecting standings and playoff races and depriving seniors on both teams of their final glories. Lawrence Academy's forfeit against Governor's Academy, the columnist noted with a straight keyboard, quote, cost many of Governor's college hopefuls an opportunity to build up their stats and tape for college scouts. Because, Josh, that's what it's all about. That's what high school football is truly, truly about. Stacked teams taking advantage of depleted, undersized, inexperienced, and exhausted opponents to piled up statistics that might impress college recruiters. The war on football just never ends. Josh, what's your Keith Null? So there's nothing as stark about the inequities and disparities in college football as um, when the great Steve Berkowitz of USA Today uh, each weekend starts tweeting out the various incentives and bonuses that coaches get, financial um, bonuses, um, because their players won games. This was on my list of future afterballs, so it's all yours now, Josh. Uh, sorry, Stefan. I got there first. So here are some examples of th- some things that Berkowitz uh, tweeted recently. He has access to the contract seemingly of every um, major college football coach with all of their different incentive clauses. So for example, after Alabama beat LSU, eh, not that big a deal. But after Alabama coach Nick Saban got a $75,000 bonus because they clinched the SEC West title. So congratulations, Alabama players. You just got your um, extremely rich coach $75,000 by earning a spot in the conference championship game. Fresno State's Jeff Tedford got $50,000 because uh, his team got eight wins. He has earned $300,000 in bonuses so far this season. That must make the Fresno State players just feel so good that their coach has uh, gotten that many incentives. And then, um, of course, we're all following uh, UConn, which lost to Tulsa. 49 to 19. This is my favorite bonus contract. UConn uh, is now 1 and 8 on the year, and UConn coach Randy Edsel uh, got a bonus of $2,000. Head coach Randy Edsel of the 1 and 8 UConn Huskies, whose team lost 49 49 to 19 um, because UConn scored first in the game. So cha ching for Randy Edsel. $2,000 $2,000 for his team losing 49 to 19. So USA Today, where Berkowitz works, they uh, tweeted out about a month ago this graphic of all of Randy Edsel's bizarre contract incentives. They're amazing. So he gets $2,000 each for scoring first, leading at halftime, and if his team leads the game in points per possession or total offense, which is odd the points per possession thing is particularly odd then on defense he gets two thousand dollars each for his team leading in tackles for loss margin points per possession turnover margin and sacks he also gets up to fifty thousand dollars if his team averages more than 40 points on the year 
and $50,000 if his team gives up less than 10. There's a kind of a sliding scale situation there. Um, Morgan Moriarty of SB Nation described this as UConn head coach Randy Edsel's contract is basically just a prop bets sheet, which I thought was a fair characterization. So this was all new to me. Like I hadn't seen this before this weekend. Um, and then I looked in the replies to Berkowitz tweeting about um, Randy Etzel's weird score first situation. And Mike Waters, a reporter for um, Syracuse.com, said some intrepid re- reporter should check to see how often UConn won the toss and Edsel elected to receive. I don't know if I would describe myself as intrepid, but I do have the ability to search th- to Google things. And so this was the task that I set out for myself uh, uh, on Sunday evening. Um, does Randy Edsel, who has a financial incentive for his team to score first, when his team wins the toss, does he elect to receive, which would allow, give his team a better chance to score first rather than deferring to the second half going on defense first. So they played 21 games the last two years. And I did confirm with Berkowitz that this, this incentive clause has been in effect for both seasons. So, Edsel, uh, 21 games with the score first incentive. UConn has only won the toss six times. So we have a pretty wow. small data set here. That's really weird, though. Six out of 21? Yeah. So they've taken the ball first four times out of six. So it's not like a slam dunk. It's not like he does it every time. Certainly not in the opposite direction where he defers every time. But we've got a little bit of evidence, four to two. You know, if it was three to three, we would have maybe come to a different conclusion. We maybe, need a larger maybe, sample size Maybe here. in the other two, Josh, he was confident that his defense would score safety. It's a great point. Pick uh, six. That's a great point. Maybe they're playing Nathan Peterman. So um, four, taking the ball four times, deferring it twice. We obviously need more uh, data points here. But let's look at the larger story here. The college... Stats are hard to come by. At least I was not able to come by them. Maybe someone who is more intrepid would have come by college taking the ball versus deferring stats. But in the NFL, it's a very clear trend. So when teams were given the choice to defer their choice into the second half, that started in 2008. Only 7.8% of coin toss winners chose to defer. But by 2015, that number had changed. This is like pretty crazy. It had gone from 7.8% to 76.4% of teams chose to defer in the second half. And then according to ESPN, stats and information, this uh, as of 2015, teams who deferred won 54.9% of the time. Um, the explanation for choosing to defer is that um, – teams like to do this, and it seems borne out by logic and, and numbers to some degree, is that teams like to be able to double up because you can game the clock. If you have the ball last in the first half, you can milk the clock, try to score with no time left, and then immediately get the ball back in the second half. Whereas if you get the ball first in the first half, you kind of seed control of that. You lose con- the opportunity for doing that kind of double up. Um, is it does it give you like a huge advantage? Probably not. Do we have data on how many teams end the first half with the ball and then start the second half with the ball? We don't. That would be a great uh, that research. Would be very to do. intrepid. Somebody would need to be intrepid to do that. But Bill Belichick, this was like a New York Times story a few years ago. At that point, he had chosen to defer forty eight times out of fifty. Um, it seems like there are a few exceptions. 
in the NFL um, and maybe in, in college, but it seems like deferring is the thing that uh, most coaches do. So Randy Edsel, I don't know. seems like the, the guy might be, might be wanting to get cash the, the extra $2,000 every week for his one and eight team. I don't know. Let's just be clear. Because you really haven't been super clear that Randy Edsel is getting bonuses based on how his unpaid players perform for him in very specific situations during games. I was like extremely clear about that at the beginning of the after. Then I'm just reiterating it because it needs to be reiterated. So more evidence needed. Early indications. Early research shows that Randy Edsel's behavior here might be questionable. If I were a UConn fan or player, I might wonder, is my coach just trying to make an extra $2,000 in cash off of uh, players' unpaid labor here? I don't know. Maybe it's a question you should raise about your one and eight coach. Hey, it is capped at $100,000, these bonuses, John. Right. So, yeah. Per year. Per year. So that seems sensible for, for Randy Etzel, one and eight coach of UConn. Yeah, he might, he might be deferred with that record before too long. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. You can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.